John Bunyan is an awesome author. Certainly one of the best that God ever made. I uh, really appreciate him as an author. Not only did John Bunyan write The Pilgrim's Progress, but he read, he sorry, he also wrote another book which I highly commend to you called The Holy War. Now that's the really short title. In typical uh, Puritan fashion, it's it takes up a whole page by itself. But anyway, here's what he says at the beginning of his wonderful book. Please read it. called The Holy War. He says this. He says, In this country of universe, there lies a pleasant and peaceful city called Mansoul. The picturesque architecture of this town, its convenient location, and its superior advantages cannot be equaled under heaven. Once upon a time, a mighty giant named Diabolus made an assault upon this famous town of Mansoul. He tried to take it and make it his own habitation. This giant was the terrible prince of darkness. He was originally one of the servants of King Shaddai, who had placed him in a very high and mighty position. Knowing they had lost their positions and the king's favor forever, Diabolus and his rebels turned their pride into hatred against Shaddai and his son. They roamed about in fury from place to place in search of something that belonged to the king on which to take their revenge. At last, they happened to find this spacious country of universe, and they steered their course toward the famous town of Mansoul, considering it to be one of the chief works and delights of King Shaddai. So they decided to make an assault upon the town. When they found the place, they shouted horribly for joy and roared as a lion over its prey, saying, Now we have found the prize and how to take revenge on King Shaddai for what he has done to us. So they called a council of war and considered what methods they should use to win this famous town of Mansoul for themselves. There you go, my friends. That's how this awesome book starts. But may I say, not just back in the 1600s, but even today... Diabolus, also known as Satan, continues to assault the town of Mansoul. He attacks, by the way, are primarily focused in two areas. You need to be aware of this, because it's usually going to come at you through your emotions and your mind. See, my friend, Satan wants to snatch God's word from you. He wants to fill your mind with all sorts of bad things like lies, immorality, and false doctrine. He wants you to think that sin is it's not really that bad. It's not your greatest problem. He wants to drown you in a sea of sin so that you become tolerant of it. He wants to entertain you with sin so you think it's actually okay. He wants you to laugh at sin as you watch television or you go to the movie theater. He wants to twist your thinking. And sometimes he does this by getting you to listen to pop music and rock music and other kinds of music 
and he uses music to twist your thinking, using the appealing music to accomplish his ends. He wants to confuse your emotions by corrupting your desires and drawing your affections to the wrong things. He wants to destroy your conscience, sear your conscience, like with a hot iron, the Bible says, so that you no longer have this warning going off inside you. And he wants to debilitate your will and get you to do things you should not do. So my friends, what was the point in saying all that? Is this, sometimes, here's part of the problem, sometimes Christians think they're on the playground when they need to be thinking, no, actually I'm on the battleground. I'm not on a playground here. This isn't, this isn't supposed to be fun. You're in spiritual warfare, or what I'm calling Christian warfare. You have a very serious enemy who wants to destroy you. You need to be engaged in the battle. So you say, well, okay, how do I fight the enemy? Glad you asked that question. I, I, I was ready for that. So look at Ephesians 6, verse 10. It's actually, God was ready for this. Not original with me. He wrote this. So look at Ephesians 6, verse 10. Which says this, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. So my proposition is actually coming right there from verse 13. I didn't really even come up with it. God did. So my friends, here's what God wants you to do. By the way, I have no notes for you today, so you're going to have to write vigorously. But here, my, here, here it is, friends. Here's the proposition that God wants you to stand firm in Christian warfare. You are in a war. You are not on the playground. It's a serious battleground you need to be aware of. So what is our Christian warfare like? Here's where we need to start, okay? What's it like? Well, three things, that, at least three things the Bible's telling us here. Number one, the warfare you are in is supernatural, it is personal, and it is futile if you fight it with natural weapons. Let me explain these things, okay? Number one, it's supernatural. Because notice what verse 12 reminds us of. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, your real enemy is not people, it is not groups of people, it, it is the spiritual forces. And notice it's also a personal thing because the Bible tells you you are in a struggle, and that word struggle uh, is sometimes interpreted, translated as wrestle. You're in a wrestling match. In other words, it's a hand-to-hand -hand fight. And it is also futile if fought with natural weapons. So in other words, uh, you can get the biggest machine gun that... that people have ever made, and it's not going to work. Do you know why a machine gun doesn't work in this warfare? Think about it. 
Can you kill a demon with a machine gun? The machine gun has no effect on a demon nor Satan. You, and you say, okay, well, I'll just get something bigger and more powerful. Well, guess what? Missiles don't work either. Uh, you, you can get the biggest, you know, atomic weapon, missile head, you know, all that sort of stuff, and it has no effect on a demon. Okay, well, maybe a bomb. No, that doesn't work either. You, you can't blow up a demon. Uh, well, you say, well, maybe I just need more, you know, bigger, more stuff. Well, you can have an entire Navy fleet, and it will have no effect on a demon. Uh, the Air Force isn't going to work either. Certainly not the New Zealand Air Force. That's pretty much useless, right? I mean, there's a few airplanes, but still, right? It doesn't matter if you have China and the United States Air Force combined together. It still has no effect on a demon. Not going to work. You say, okay, well, maybe I'll get the special forces, right? Maybe the special forces. I'm going to send in the Navy SEALs. They're going to take out those demons. No, they won't work. All futile. Natural weapons, no, no matter what you come up with, has no effect on Satan and the demons. You can't kill them. So what are we to do, you say? <laughs> That's, I mean, this, this warfare is, is horrible stuff. So what, what, what am I to do? Well, verse 10, God tells you to do this. Okay, Here's a command for you. God says to be strong in the Lord. And by the way, in the Greek, it's actually even more specific than that. The idea is this, my friends. It is be made strong in the Lord. In other words, somebody else has to do this action to you. Right? That's what the Greek is telling us. In other words, you, you let yourself be made strong. Because you can't do it. God has to do this in you. Your strength is inferior to Satan's. So you need someone's strength who is greater than Satan. You need the one who made him. All right. So, so allow God to let this action, make this action take place in you. The idea is it's a, uh, you were to be strengthened because it's, it's present tense. It's an ongoing thing through your entire earthly life. Present imperative passive verb here. Be made strong in the Lord. And as you think about this, in, in, uh, in the ultimate sense, by the way, the church's battles with Satan have already be, been won. You say, is that in the Bible? Yeah, read Romans chapter 5, particularly the end of Romans chapter 5. We don't have time for that. But wonderful passage where we see that through Jesus' crucifixion and, and resurrection, he has actually destroyed Satan and his power. The power of sin has been destroyed in your life through Christ. So trust in Jesus Christ then initiates a person into that victory. So to the extent that any Christian is strong in the Lord then, your victory over, over the worst that Satan has to offer is something that is guaranteed. Guaranteed. Not many guarantees in this world, but this is one of them. So we are in a war, a, a fierce and terrible war, but we have no reason to be afraid if we're on the Lord's side. See, if you're in the Lord's army, you're, you're, you're already on the side that's going to win, and you already know this, because God's told us this. So how do you then receive this strength? You say, whoa, man, 
be made strong in the Lord. So God has to do this. How does this happen? Glad you asked. Here's what one commentator said. Look at this. Uh, quote, appropriation of that strength comes through the means of grace. What are those? Well, God's given us prayer, knowledge of and obedience to the word, and faith in the promises of God. End quote. There you go. That's how it happens. That's how God does that work in you. But let's get a little more specific here in this text. So how are we made strong? And the answer is in verse 11. How are we made strong? You are, you do this by putting on God's armor. Not yours, but God's armor. So in order to take advantage of the, the strength of God's might, a believer must also put on the full spiritual armor that God supplies. Now notice those words, put on. Key words here. Because put on is carrying this idea that this is something that is a once-for-all thing. It's a permanent thing. So please don't think of it like a, like a Roman soldier you know, would treat his armor. See, the full armor of God is not something that you put on and then you take off, and then you put it on again, and then you take it off. It's something that is to remain on you permanently. Because... As, as the Apostle Paul's writing these words, he's actually chained to a Roman soldier. You realize that, right? This is one of those prison epistles. So he's looking at a guy who's wearing the armor as he's chained to him and writing these words the Holy Spirit's giving to him. But see, a Roman soldier, I mean, that guy, when he's no longer chained to the Apostle Paul, he, he goes home and he's not sleeping in his armor. Right? He takes that armor off. But God's saying you leave it on permanently. It's not just a uniform that you wear while you're, uh, while you're in battle. It's a, a lifetime permanent thing. Never remove it. The armor of God is to be the Christian's lifelong companion. It's, it's, it becomes your skin. Think of it that way. And uh, we're not going to take the time to, to look at that armor, by the way. But uh, you'll, you'll see on the screen here that uh, God actually gives you six main pieces of a soldier's armor. And uh, that's obviously not how a Roman soldier looks. But you'll, but notice, notice what it says there. there. God gives you a belt, the breastplate, the boots, the shield, the helmet, and the sword. Now that's, that's the full armor of God that, that is mentioned in the text. And you say, well, what, it actually represents something. Right? Because, uh, you know, a belt, you know, that, what's a belt going to do in spiritual warfare, right? So what's the point of those things? Well, look at the next screen. Now here you actually got a guy dressed as a Roman soldier. So all of those things are picturing something, which we'll talk in the weeks to come. But what God has actually given to you, my friends, is truth, righteousness. He's given you the good news of the gospel. He's given you faith. He's given you salvation. And the Word of God. That is your armor in the spiritual Christian warfare. Why? You say, well, God's armor can actually equip you in our fight against the enemy. That's what you need to fight the enemy. You say, okay, that's great. Uh, why should, here, here's, here's point number four. Why should we put on God's armor? Because some of you are thinking, man, that stuff's 
that that's a lot of work. Some people think armor's heavy, and it was for the Roman soldier. It was really heavy, and it wasn't very comfortable. Uh, so, you know, man, why should I put on God's armor? Well, verse 11, look at the end of verse 11. It says, here's the reason why you should do this, so that you can stand. And not just do any standing. God wants you to stand firm. And by the way, when that was used in a military sense, it had the idea of holding a critical position while you were under attack. See, you're not, uh, you're not told to attack the devil. Did you hear what I just said? Because there is a whole spiritual warfare movement out there that has gone way past what the Bible says. And they're, they're trying to get you to do stuff that God never told you to do. And if you're not familiar with all that stuff, we can talk later. Please come talk to me. I don't have time to get in all the weird stuff going on in our world today. See, you are not to attack the devil. You're not to advance against him. God only tells you to do what? To stand. In other words, we're to hold the territory that Christ has already gained. Just hold it. And the territory the church has conquered, if you will. So stand firm. By the way, let me let me explain it this way from one of my... Uh, I love history. History is awesome. You should read it. Uh, but one of the one of the great stories in history uh, that really illustrates this is the, at the Battle of Thermopylae. At the Battle of Thermopylae, a long long time ago, I'll tell you more about this. But you have a great example of standing firm in the face of an insurmountable enemy, and that's exactly what the Spartans did. Three hundred Spartans plus some others. But the 300s were the key part. 300 were the key part. See, the Spartans, these guys were fearless. They're weird, okay? Spartans are weird, okay? You mean, they're not normal families, right? Uh, if you know anything about Spartans, they're just—they they raise their sons and, and even their daughters to be soldiers. You know, don't feel any pain, don't fear death. In fact, you know, dying in battle was was the greatest thing that could happen to you. Uh, but anyway, there the, the problem was you had this huge army coming from Persia. And so the Spartans they, they you know there's no there's no way they're coming to attack us. The Spartans said we're gonna we're gonna hold them off. And so there there was this fighting between the Greek city states here that was going on, uh, led by Sparta, and then you had the Persian Empire led by King Xerxes the first and uh, he, he's, he's wanting to conquer more territory. And so King Xerxes had amassed a huge army and a navy. Uh, as far as we know, he, uh, he wanted to conquer all of Greece because they were the kind of the power, you know, were this developing power at, at that time. And so the Greek force only had 7,000 men. And they marched up north to the spot where they, they, they could use their forces to the greatest advantage. You, you'll see here, by the way, here's kind of how it looked. So there was this very narrow pass right next. You had the ocean on one side and then these big mountains on the other. And so they thought, well, we're Spartans. We can hold that. Uh, but then it doesn't matter how many guys Xerxes sends us. We're Spartans, so we're going to hold it. We're going to stand firm. And so even though the Greeks were vastly outnumbered, something like 300,000 to 7,000, 
they held off the Persians for seven days in total. Problem was, there was a traitor in Greece, and the traitor told King Xerxes how you could go around and get behind them using a goat track. But anyway, the, the, the rear guard was eventually annihilated in one of the history's most famous last stands. And during two, two days of full battle, the small force that was led by King Leonidas I of Sparta actually blocked that road there against a massive Persian army. They stood firm. After the second day of battle, a local, uh, I can't even say his name, anyway, he betrayed the Greeks and gave away the goat track and uh, King Leonidas, was, who, who finally became aware of what was, they were being outflanked. He, he actually dismissed most of his army, and the 300 became famous because they were what was left. 300 Spartans, including King Leonidas, held the pass. But eventually, uh, the vast majority of them were killed because they were just surrounded and just vastly outnumbered. But it's a great story how here's, here's a group of people who are so committed to their cause and to their freedom that uh, they stood firm. And Greece, by the way, Greece was saved, ended up becoming a big empire themselves. But we see also in this text uh, who we're fighting against. May I remind you here, the enemy is Satan and the demons. Is Satan and the demons? Notice the, the, the verse. The end of verse twelve mentions the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Scripture, by the way, is very clear about Satan's who he is. Jesus talked about him. He's a real person. He is a real being. He has a personal existence. So last week we talked a lot about him, so if you want to know more about him, look, listen to last week's message. But originally he was an anointed cherubim, guarding the very holiness of God right there in heaven. But he rebelled against his creator and uh, tried to usurp God's power and his glory and his authority, and so God cast him to earth. And I love uh, how uh, Martin Luther's song reminds us of our foe in that, that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And so Martin, Lu- Martin uh, Luther said this, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not as equal. And so the, the Bible reminds us who this guy here, Satan, is. He's an anointed cherub. He's the ruler of the demons, the ruler of this world, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, and there are numerous others. He has all kinds of descriptions. And one of the points of all those descriptions is, is to remind you that he can attack you in all sorts of ways. He's not one-dimensional. He is multi-dimensional. Beware of his deceptions and his schemes. He can come at you from any direction. He's identified as the great dragon, a roaring lion, the tempter, and the accuser. And of course, his most prominent name in the Bible, the one that God uses the most, is Satan, because Satan means he is your adversary. 
52 times the Bible calls him Satan. 35 times the Bible calls him the devil. That means he is your slanderer. He, he, he's the guy who, uh, you know, he, he's going to look good in your face, but he's, he's actually got an arm behind you and he's stabbing you in the back with a knife as he's smiling at you and kissing you on the face. And so this fallen archangel and his, his angels, who, who eventually become demons, have been tempting and corrupting mankind ever since the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 2 there. They're an evil, formidable, cunning, powerful, and invisible foe, which you have no hope of defeating on your own, in your own power. You, you, you will not match his power. No hope. And fortunately, God tells us here, what are the schemes of the devil? That's number six. What are the schemes of the devil? Well, the Bible's really helpful. Uh, as At the end of verse 11, it talks about you, uh, he's given you this whole armor of God. You, you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, that word schemes in your Bible is interesting because it, it's the Greek word methodia. We get the English word method coming out of that. It, it just means this, my friends. It has the idea of craftiness. It means cunning. It means deception. And the term was often used of a wild animal who was cunningly stalking and unexpectedly pouncing on its prey like in this picture here. Notice on the left, you, you know what those are, right? You know, what that, you know what that is on the left? That's dinner. The, those gazelles on the left are dinner. Because notice what's in the circle. That cheetah is in the circle, and it's gotten way too close and can outrun those gazelles on short distances because they're the fastest land animal on planet Earth. <laughs> so hiding, hiding just not far, not far away is a cheetah that's, that's about to have dinner and going to dine on those gazelles. So I hope you can, you can see what's going on there because that's exactly what God's telling you with the devil's schemes. He's very cunning. He's very deceptive. He's he's sneaky. So Satan's evil schemes are built around stealth. It's built around deception. One commentator said this, quote, look at this on the screen. Mention of the schemes of the devil reminds us of the trickery and subterfuge by which evil and temptation present themselves in our lives. Evil rarely looks evil until it accomplishes its goal. It gains entrance by appearing attractive, desirable, and perfectly legitimate. It is a baited and camouflaged trap. And if, you're in, if you are ignorant or uh, unlearned about bait and traps, let me just quickly inform you of what Satan is attempting to do. I'll put an illustration on the screen here for you. Now, no, I'm not being fishy, but pretend you're a fish. Just pretend you're a fish, all right? Just get that in your head. Think like a fish, all right? How many of you would bite a bear hook? You say, oh, yummy, yeah, yeah, bring it on. Bring it on, bite the bear hook. No, you don't want that. See, fish don't, 
you don't catch fish with bare hooks. So what do people do? People, people are cunning and deceptive. If you're a good fisherman, you're going to use the next slide, right? Right? That, doesn't that look more yummy? Because you're a fish. And that looks like a little fish. It's deceiving you. It's, it's camouflaged. It still has the hooks. But it looks yummy to eat. And so, so you're a fish. You're going to come along, and you're going to bite that, and you're going to get caught in the trap on the hook. And that's exactly what Satan does. He lures you in. That's why they're called lures. He lures you in, and he's enticing you with something that looks good. But then you get caught, and then you're, you're done for. You're done for. And so what's the lure doing? The lure is saying, bite me. Bite me. Come get me. I'm, I'm good. Right? Isn't that the, the same old lies that Satan did to Eve in the garden? Same thing. And he's still using the same scheme, the same method. It's cunning. It's deceptive, right? Oh, Eve, you know, doesn't that fruit look good? You know, that fruit, that fruit's going to make, make you wise. So Satan tempts her with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Go, go ahead, Eve, take it. Right? So it's, it's, it's deceptive. The hooks are hidden. Eve takes it. She bites. She's on the hook. And she's destroyed. That's how he works. So let me just give you a few of his schemes. Let me give you a few of his methods. In fact, I've already started talking about one of them. Uh, one of Satan's schemes or methods is this, my friends. It's doubt. Watch out for doubt. Satan tries to undermine God's own character. See, Satan tries to be a theologian, but he's a really bad one. He's a false teacher. <laughs> and so he attacks God's character and credibility because he actually wants you to doubt God. He doesn't like God. He doesn't want you to worship God. And so with that tactic, he what did he do? He succeeded in plunging the entire human race into sin. So in the Garden of Eden there, the serpent there questioned God's word when when he said to Eve, Has God said? Hmm. So what's he doing? He challenged God's motives. He's challenging God's own character, his goodness in particular. And when he's saying that God had a selfish motive, Eve, God's very selfish, and he, he loves that tree, and he doesn't want you to be you know, wise and all that sort of stuff. So that's why he's actually forbidding you from eating of that tree. And so he was saying that uh, they could not trust God because he might say one thing, but he actually means another. Oh, that's horrible. And so Satan claims to be the good guy, right? <laughs> so he's coming like this angel of light, appearing to be this good guy. But in reality, he's actually a liar. And in reality, God can't lie, the Bible says. So don't be deceived. Don't fall into the doubt. A second method or scheme is difficulty. Difficulty. And, and that can take all shapes and forms, right? So I mean, Satan wants, he wants to make your life hard. He doesn't want your life to be easy. And, and particularly for Christians. Now, for unbelievers, sometimes he, he makes life easy for an unbeliever. But for a Christian, you don't become a Christian because you want to be wealthy and, 
and, and be prosperous. That is, that's false teaching. But often he uses persecution as a weapon against God's people. And, and of course, that can come in all kinds of forms. It might be slander. It might be ridicule. It might be abuse. And it might actually be martyrdom. Uh, a third scheme of the devil is false teaching. Satan, the Bible says, comes as an angel of light. Remember, it, don't, don't expect him to come to you lo- looking like a dragon, some mean, ugly-looking dragon. No, he's probably going to come like an angel of light. He's going to look good. He's going to be beautiful, sounding good, appearing to be the good guy. You know, the guy who loves you, you know, and wants what's best for you. Oh, no, not really. But that's how it's going to come across. So watch out. He's, he's the, like, the Bible talks about the wolf in sheep's clothing. <laughs> right? Just take off the, the veneer on the outside. He's really a wolf who's going to eat you. Watch out. Number four is self-sufficiency. The Bible warns us about this one. See, Satan wants you to actually believe in yourself. And there's all kinds of worldly philosophies kind of revolving around this idea of Satan just wants you to be self-sufficient. And so he'll use all sorts of things. Movies is a, is a very popular one that he uses to teach you to follow your heart. Just follow your heart. He wants to build up your so-called self-esteem. He wants you to love yourself. He wants you to trust in your own resources don't don't trust in God. You don't need Him. Just trust yourself. And Satan used this very scheme against many people over the years. Let me give you a prominent one that pops up in the Bible. David was one that fell to Satan's attack. And Satan's scheme was self-sufficiency. Look at this. We see it happening here in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, and it says this. Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab, that's his general, and to the princes of the people, Go, number Israel, and bring me word that I may know their number. You say, big deal. Who cares? (laughs) Is that really a sin to know how many soldiers you have in your army? In this case, it was, because God told him not to do that. God told him not to do that. You say, what's going on here? Well, David, he's wanting to know how strong he was, how strong the country was, particularly the army. And that's why he had his military advisor go and count all available soldiers in the country of Israel. But God had told him that was actually a sin, and it's a sin because he's being self-reliant, trusting in his own Strength, not depending on God. And so David's sin, by the way, had very serious consequences. It goes on to show us that God ended up sending judgment on the entire nation of Israel, and 70,000 Israelis died because of Satan's attack against David. Very serious. Watch out for self-sufficiency. Here's another scheme to watch out for. Deception. Deception. One of Satan's most effective strategies is the delusion that no serious conflict is actually happening in our world today. Right? There, there, there are people who claim to be Christians that are like, 
it's like they got their head stuck in the sand. They're like, Satan's not real. There is no spiritual warfare taking place. You know, they pretend, they're pretending they're on the playground. Having a grand old time. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. Right? That's, that's kind of their approach to life. There's no war taking place in the supernatural realm. You know, it's, it's kind of like that philosophy, if, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, well, that's how some people kind of take this. And Satan has deceived them into thinking, well, you know, there's no wolves in our flock. Well, yeah, well, that one over there, that one over there is a wolf, and it's wearing sheep's clothing. Watch out, right? And so um, Paul's reminding his readers here that the Christian struggle, look, verse 12, may I remind you what verse 12 says? The Christian struggle is not against just Satan himself, but it's it, it's actually Satan has an entire host of demons, as we read in Revelation 12. One third of the angels of heaven went with Satan and became demons. So our greatest enemy is not the world that you see, corrupt and wicked as it may be, but the world, sorry, your enemy is the world you can't see, the spiritual forces of evil. So, number seven, here's a really important question. What does God want us to do? In light of our worth, our spiritual Christian warfare, what does God want us to do? These simple words, two words, stand firm. Verse 13, you're to take up the whole armor of God for what purpose? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now here's the good news, my friend. There is no believer who cannot deal with Satan in Christ's power. However, let me, let me just warn you here, there is a great danger. And sometimes we become presumptuous thinking that we're actually free from any danger. And in fact, it was the Apostle Paul who warned you. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, he said, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands do what? Take heed, lest he fall. And so if you imagine that you have somehow mastered Scripture or any part of it, or you somehow have become strong enough to live in your own power, my friends, you've actually made yourself weak and vulnerable. You have made yourself weak and vulnerable. You have cast off your armor, and you are going to be attacked. You will be. Only where trust is completely in the Lord's power is there Safety, And so as the Apostle Paul goes on to say in, in that very context here, in fact, the very next verse in 1 Corinthians 10, look what the Bible says, my friends. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. So Martin Luther, in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress, went on to talk about your enemy and he said that that prince of darkness grim we tremble not for him his rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure how do you know that one little word shall fell him the creator of the universe spoke everything into existence and he can think him out of existence 
if he wants to. Well, it's easy for believers, especially believers who live in the Western world and places like New Zealand. It's it's easy because we're generally prosperous. We we generally have it easy, right? There's no Christians being beheaded in New Zealand for our faith. Not yet. It's coming. Certainly will happen in the tribulation. The guillotine will be reinstituted during the tribulation. The Bible tells us in Revelation. There will be thousands and thousands of Christians slain. You don't want to be around then. And so, the problem though is the church is in, in, in many ways, shapes, and forms has gone to sleep. Because we're, we have a generally good, prosperous, we become complacent, oblivious to the serious war taking place around us. Why are many believers not interested in wearing God's armor? You ever thought about that? Maybe some of you may not even have your armor on yet. Why, why haven't you put your armor on? Why don't you keep it on? <laughs> some of you go to sleep and you think, oh, you know, it's much more comfortable sleeping you know, if I take the armor off, right? I, I think the reason is many aren't interested in wearing the armor because they they're not actually in go, in, in, engaged in warfare, right? If you think you're on the playground, it's much easier to swing and you know do all the stuff on the playground if you're not wearing armor, right? If there is no enemy, why do I need armor? So here's the reality, my friends. We are at war, and you're going to continue to be at war until King Jesus comes back. So keep the armor on. Be engaged in the war. So what is our responsibility? Your responsibility as a soldier of Christ, if you're a Christian, that makes you a soldier in the Lord's army. So your responsibility is simply this. The Bible tells you to resist and stand firm. That's it. That's it. Resist and stand firm. Now here's what one commentator said. I love this. Listen to this. It's on the screen. Quote, Countless men and women have faithfully taught Sunday school for years, led many people to Jesus Christ, Some have even pastored a church, led Bible studies, ministered to the sick, and done every sort of service in the Lord's name, only to one day give up, turn their backs on His work, and disappear into the world. The circumstances differ, but the underlying reason is always the same. They took God's armor off, and thereby lost the courage, the power, and the desire to stand firm. End quote. There is a host of names of so-called former Christian pastors who now call themselves no longer Christians. How can a guy who used to preach the Word of God, claiming to be a Christian, do that? There you go. He wasn't a Christian. Maybe he wasn't wearing the armor. I don't know. But certainly, if he had armor on, he's taken it off, and he's fallen. Sad. So in the great spiritual warfare in which we do battle all the time, we are only called to resist and stand firm. You say, where is that in the Bible? Look at this. James 4, verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The Apostle Peter, who understands Satan's attacks, said this. In 1 Peter 5, verse 8, here, listen to his counsel, because he says, Be of sober spirit, 
be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith. Key. Firm? Yeah, resist him firm in your faith. Kind of in the same concept of firm, you know, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, right? Don't do it in your own. You will fall. So my friends, yes, we are in a terrible war. And the enemy is great. But there is hope. In one sense, Jesus already got the victory over your sin. You have a new master. You don't have to serve the old master anymore because you become a new creature in Christ. And you have this glorious union in in Him. And the Holy Spirit resides within every Christian. And He is, of course, greater than Satan and all the demons combined. So yes, great enemy, bigger God. So my friends, there's hope. There's hope. So what does God want you to do? God wants you to stand firm in Christian warfare. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these words that are so helpful, so applicable to our everyday life on planet Earth, because we're always in warfare. And so may we understand what the Bible is teaching here and, and know how to apply it to our lives, to our church, because of course this was written to a church. It's applicable for church life. So may we, uh, may we not forsake you. Uh, would you please defend us against our enemy? Uh, defend us against evil and temptation. We thankful, so thankful, for those encouraging words from Corinthians that that there is no temptation that can overtake us. Because you're a God who is faithful and you've, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. So thanks for that. So may we live in your power, in your strength. Resist the devil so we would see him flee from us. But may we be on the alert, always on the alert, always keeping our armor on, never taking it off. May we see it as something that's permanent. Defend us, we pray, until you come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.